Psychotherapist and Agrian Philippa Perry joins us this week on the How To Be 60 podcast. She and her husband Grayson are now regarded as some of our brightest talents, but it wasn't always that way. They thought I was useless. The best they hoped for me was to make a good marriage. So you can imagine how delighted they were with my second marriage when, when they said, well, what does your new boyfriend do? And I said, oh, he's the tea boy in the hairdresser. He makes the tea for the ladies that are having their hair done. Their faces sort of drop because that's what Grayson, my husband, did for a living then. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Hello friends, if that is not being too presumptuous. I don't think it is actually, because we've had nearly 80 episodes. So I mean, if they hated us, they would have gone by now, wouldn't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. they would. So unless they love to hate us, because that's the thing as well. Anyway, Kay Adams and Karen McKenzie reporting for duty on another How To Be 60 podcast. Um, now, straight off the back, mm. none of your lewd and libidinous chat here, because we've got a very serious guest today. Um, <laughs> we have got the celebrated psychotherapist mm. and best-selling author, Philippa Perry. Very grown up. Yes, yes. And yes. um, she has a new book out, which um, I'm going to let you borrow. I genuinely have been really enjoying it. I love called- the colours. It is. I do love those colours, actually. A lovely, vivid lime green with a pink. Uh, the book you want everyone you love to read with an oh. asterisk, and maybe a few you don't. So that's given me permission to give it. <laughs> I'll enjoy you. this. Thank you. I've not finished it yet. You'll do no, it, but you'll do no, it. I'm no, keeping no. it. Thank you. Yes, that you means will. I'll never get it. I'll, no, I should, I'm happy to buy it. I'm, I'm screenshotting little, they have little everyday, well, everyday wisdoms. Um, and I've screenshotted quite a lot. Actually. And have you think. learned many for yourself? I've ruminated on them. I have. Actually, it's good. Will you act on them? Uh, you've got to try, haven't you? But at least I will reflect on them, which is something, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, but anyway, here, right. before we start to be clever, okay, um, yeah. just a wee dog leg here. Have you got a hairy face? No. No? No. Because I was at Loose Women the other day and well, one of the, the panel members, undisclosed, was shaving her face. Got the whole yes no no just this sort of cheek bit and and you know apparently it's the thing that happens when you get older that your face gets kind of hairier but it hasn't happened to me no you've got that little hair under your chin yeah no but that's my whisker i quite like that i'm quite fond of that play with it it's like a worry whisper you know if if i'm kind of worried about something (laughs) i play with my whisker (laughs) you twist it around your finger i know and people do want to cut it off and i say no 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 i like it did you used to cut it off yeah are you embracing it now i love it i love this whisker you always loved it. it makes me feel thoughtful because I can't stroke my thin, my chin, so I just sort of stroke my. <laughs> it's my probably about what, an inch and a half. Yeah. But the hair anyway, face no, thing. It's a strange thing. Because it, um, it, like, it's not testosterone, is it? My body has given up on growing hair. It's brilliant, isn't it? You don't have to shave or wax your underarms or anything. Not that there's ever anyone seeing you have to do it, but um, as a rule, I did. And now it's, I can't remember the last time. I know, well, I I was loving it, but then I thought, Jesus, my body is just given up. What do you mean it's given up? Because it doesn't have the energy to produce hair anymore. It's not vital anymore. No, it's not. It's giving up. It's atrophying. It's completely, honestly, it's not a good thing. You think it's a good thing. I'm got, very happy with it. Thank yeah, you very much I know, indeed. I know, but you're just so basic. But you're anyway. just not giving up. Look at you, just still nye, 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 nye at me. So that's certainly not giving up. <laughs> My gob's not going to give up, is it? Now, have you got any dilemmas that you would like to run by, Philippa? Because she is also the agony aunt for the observer. Look, there's a funny thing, right? Because um, I probably need to watch this because of people that listen to this. Um, my ex. I was going to say husband, but I suppose he was as good as a husband. Um, 
Richard <laughs> How good has is that? been <laughs> no, very nice guy, father of my children. So he's been married uh, to his current wife Linda for oh god twenty years, and um, we get on well. We get on, you know, we go out for meals, and um, they invited us down to their new house and to stay over. And I can't remember why. I think for whatever was going on, I said, "No, let's just come down for a meal, and we'll come back up the road." And were um, you afraid of the sexual tension? Oh, that would be over. That yeah. would be absolutely it between Linda and I. You mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one. And sometimes you say it to people. I mean, I'm quite relaxed with it. Um, I don't know. Is is it odd that we sort of um, would enjoy each other's company? Um, I have to say, I'm aware that when I get in touch with them, I always get in touch with Linda. Yeah. Apart from when um, Lisa told us she was pregnant, then it was directly to Richard because, you know. Yeah. yeah. But, so it'd be um, your shared granddaughter. Yes. Uh, I don't think it's... I, I think most people would see it as progressive, mm-hmm. wouldn't they? But does it make you kind of... I mean, I don't believe in the one, I don't think. But some people might say it proves that he wasn't the one mm-hmm. because no, you've he's... moved on you've yeah. got a platonic relationship he's with somebody he's been with and, and he's so... happy and he's happy lasted a lot longer so maybe it's just confirmation that you weren't meant to be together yes but still have a very good friendship i don't think that's too bad no yeah. i think no i think that's, that's okay. okay not to worry about there there's lots of things that you're weird about but i don't think that one is too well, i'll take too that bad. one then i've got one are you right i right. had lunch with my agent last week right who's in her 30s mm-hmm. and got a young child and she's you know very frantic and rushing about and whatever and she said well I'm going away with my husband this weekend so looking forward to it we're just going to be together and we're going to just drink champagne and that's what she said we're just going to drink champagne and I thought oh my god Ian and I have been together 30 years we have never at any stage in our relationship and I used to get very jealous of other friends who used to say like a couple god we were up to two last night we were just drinking we were a bit pissed and then we were dancing in the kitchen you know that kind of um rom-com kind of stuff and we have never ever done that and so I said well so what, what do you I mean, I was a bit obvious. She's only 30. What do you do when you've drunk a lot of champagne? They're obviously having sex. I'm probably not going to be doing that. Um, Sick in a corner. No, but no. But actually what she said that I thought was interesting was she said, well, a lot of our life is really mundane since we've had the child. Mm. Um, She loves, you know, but organizing nursery places, all the kind of hassles that happen. When we go away and we drink champagne together, it takes us out of the mundane life and we'd giggle we're silly and so we get a break from humdrum life and that's the first time somebody's explained that to me in a way that had some sense behind it yes and I thought god you're right and I don't know if Ian and I have because I've never seen Ian drunk in 30 odd years oh my god stop it never seen him drunk and has he seen you drunk well, I might have got a bit pissed with friends, but and he's fine about it. I mean, he doesn't care. He's not going to judge me or anything. But we've never got drunk together. I think. I wonder if that is something missing from our relationship because, like, you know that thing about older couples, and you always get younger people who say this. And I said this when I was young. Oh my god, I was in a restaurant the other night. And I saw these two old people, and they didn't speak to each other for yes. at least half an hour. And oh my god, yes. if I ever turn out like that, I'm absolutely going to divorce them because it's going to be the end of the world. That you know. And I said that, but yeah. 
Well, no, but Ooh, we you said yes. Well, we can go out for dinner, or we can certainly spend time together in the house for a long time and not be chat, 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 chatting. Well, that's been in the house, but it's your safe place. Okay. Your we can go out for coffee and we can both be sort of sitting like, you know, <laughs> cross-eyed out a window. We're not chat, 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 chatting all the time, and gazing you, into each other's eyes. You don't need to be gazing into each other's eyes. Do you know what goes on in Ian's life? Is he very vocal about it? Does he come home and chat about it? He's a bloke. He's a lovely, lovely bloke. Yeah, but blokes are all different, aren't they? That, that, you know, um, mm-hmm. and we, we kind of giggle at things and stuff, but we don't have that rom-com. We're slightly pissed and, oh, my God. Have we you have you... been together quite a long time, have But you? we've never had that. No, you've never had it. Do you have that with Stephen? Oh, no, it's Stephen. Stephen's very musical. I'd like to see him dancing in the kitchen. Oh, my God, no, Stephen's totally different. He's quite serious, but I quite like that. It's almost like safe. It's funny, isn't it? I think I remember when I said to Stephen at first, do you know what? I'm really content. <laughs> he was really pissed off, actually. I think he's thought, oh, my God, is that what it's come to? You're content. I thought it was a compliment that I had, not that I'd settled for this. It was just that he thought, oh, God content so what what in your relationship do you have if it's not through alcohol or whatever that takes you away from the humdrum do you know what i like is when stephen takes out the guitar and and sings oh in the living room and he's very relaxed and i just think oh that's so nice so is he singing like to that. you no 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 and i always remember actually he would play the guitar in the morning right he's he that that is his how he relaxes and um and when I used to come down he'd come down before me he'd play his guitar when I'd come in he'd sort of go and he would obviously think oh, do I want to sing in front of her but that's all changed now and now he's very happy and relaxed and comfortable in his own skin which is and nice I really like that. that no that is nice but then that's not an intimate moment with well, you well it's not but I like to sit there and think I would like to think he was kind of, um, what's the word, serenading me. He's not. But I just think, oh, you're quite sexy doing that. So I suppose that is my... Oh, you find that? I do, actually. All right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What I'd like, and I wonder whether Philippa would be, um, inter- not interested, but be able to kind of throw a bit of light on this, is you and your lack of, like, not wanting to be touched. Like, you kind of freak at... See, you you have made this up. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. <laughs> You've utterly made this up. You have. Quoting bits from people. I don't want podcasts. you to touch me. That's a whole different ball game. No, you're trying to get out. No, of that. no. Listen, I've got two different lives. I live in London, and I've got to cuddle and hug people all the fucking time because that's what yeah, you do in London, kind of like and everyone's kissing, stuff. kissing. Well, it is, but I go with it, and I'm fine with it. It's okay. When I'm home, I'm in Scotland, and I'm being Scottish. Oh I don't God. want to hug randoms. Okay, that's just it. Victims. Well, it's just the way it's, it's the way I was brought up, and I'm perfectly happy with it. But it well, doesn't make I think me not it's a affectionate. Sign of intimacy that's sort of not happening. No, I don't know what it is. Oh my God. it's not true. It's right. not. But I have to say, very worrying thing about Ian, I, what he has developed is a rom com habit. I mean, I come in at night and he's sitting watching television. We've had Made in Manhattan. I've had A Star Is Born. He watches Harry Met Sally on a bloody oh loop. I have oh, no idea seriously. what is going on. That Harry needs Met analysis. Sally. Whoa! Wonder what bit he stop, pause, stop, rewind. He used to watch Jason Bourne. Now it's Jennifer Lopez. I really don't know what's going on there. Anyway, let's have the email of the week. Yeah, yeah and then yeah, we'll yeah. speak to Philippa, who is looking at as if she's thinking, "No way, am I going to sort these two Christ. out?" Not <laughs> enough. Beyond. Not in 45 minutes anyway. <laughs> they are beyond. So, our email of the week. 
So this is from Tracy. Right. Hi, Tracy. Uh, it says, hi, okay, can I be listening to your podcast from the start, knowing that the big six was coming up for me? Uh, the last few years have been tough because I found out that my husband was cheating on me. Oh. And despite fighting for a year, I had to give up and leave. Gosh, that, that's sad, actually, fighting for it for a year. Um, lived in a rented house for a couple of years with my son, who's got a lot of mental health problems. He's in his 20s. I'm effectively his carer. And the move was very tough for him. At times, I have felt completely broken and I couldn't see a way forward. And having a laugh with you has really helped. Well, I'm glad about that, oh, Tracy. Um, this year, I moved into my own house. I uh, had to get a mortgage, so retirement is not on the horizon. Divorce came through a Bright new tattoo on my back. Uh, oh, nice. Now I can do what I want. I'm always trying to look on the bright side, even though it's been hard lately. And I am determined to stride into my 60s with my head held high and hope for the future. Um, Tracy's actually written a poem, which is really lovely. And, I, and I'll read that out um, at the end. Well, Tracy, I'm so glad that we've given you a laugh. It's probably all we are qualified to do. Um, hopefully, Philippa might be able to say something sage uh, that will that will help you. But I think it is a reminder that because sometimes we talk, obviously, we talk about sexy. We kind of joke a lot and stuff. And there's lots that's great about it, and you embrace it, and you be positive. But a lot of people have a shit time. God, I know. At I this know. time of life. And, you know, just to talk about let's go in camper vans, let's have hobbies, let's enjoy the moment, let's, you know, embrace this time in our life. It's not always the circumstances that people find themselves in. No, starting from scratch again is really bloody hard. Really oh, hard. God. Yeah. Anyway, keep your emails coming. We absolutely love them. Uh, your experiences of the Big Six O, it's podcast at htb60.com. Let's speak to Philippa after this. Philippa, thank you for your patience. It's fun. I'll listen more <laughs> often. <laughs> Oh God! You know what is so funny? The pressure of—we always call that our wittering at the beginning. The pressure of doing that in front of someone like you, who's acknowledged as a sort of cerebral person, is massive. That's what you're projecting onto me. I'm as much as a natterer and a chatterer as anyone. Don't worry about it. Are you really? Yeah, of course. You know what I've done this morning? I've been to Claridge's with one of my best friends just to natter and chatter over breakfast for two hours. I've been doing that for two hours this morning, just frivolous, not for work, not for networking or anything, just for having a laugh. You weren't discussing Freud and Jung and Wittgenstein. No, we weren't. We were discussing whether we should prioritise our own happiness over our teenagers and stuff like that. I haven't got a teenager. She has, but, you know, that sort of thing. As I say, I have really been enjoying uh, the book and reading your columns and The Observer. And I wanted to, you said at some point in something that I read that, you know, as we get older, we become more content. We live in the moment. <laughs> And that's lovely, but it doesn't happen for everyone, does it? I see some of my friends going, quite frankly, mad at this age. Well, not when I say mad, I shouldn't use that casually, but doing things that I think it's almost like an animal who thinks it's got its final fling and it's just going to do something to blow their own lives up. And I mean, Tracy clearly has been fighting to keep her life together, but we don't all hit 60 in a mood or a circumstance of contentment, do we? No, we don't. And life still happens to us as well as us trying to steer our lives. And one of the biggest bugbears of being 60, I think, is how much bereavement you have to start doing 
because your friends start dying and uh, you've probably lost most of the elder generation. So if you've got any of them left, you really want to cling to them if you are fond of them. And so a lot of your 60s, even if everything is going well, is spent grieving and 70s and 80s. I mean, it, we become really good at it as if, as our friends die off. You think, who's next? Sometimes I see it as a conveyor belt. And uh, I'm I'm on the conveyor belt, obviously, and, you know, who's going to drop off next? And when the last of the generation above go off, you think, I'm next. It's it's me, which I think does concentrate the mind a little bit, like, so that um, you stop thinking of delayed gratification so much and think, okay, I'm going to have a bit of fun now. But if you're in your 60s and your marriage blows up like that, that Tracy who wrote, wrote in and you have to start again, that's kind of very tough because it doesn't feel age appropriate to sort of try and be an alpha adult and gather in resources for your old age because you're actually in your old age then. So that, that does feel very tough, I think, if you have to start again in your 60s. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, you're saying it's great that Tracy, you know, is saying I'm trying to look on the bright side, which is a fabulous attitude and it's an expression that we use, isn't it? But, you know, easier said than done. I think also it's important to acknowledge the not so bright side because otherwise that will come up and bite you. Mm -hmm. um, I think in my column next week, I've got a lady who coped magnificently with widowhood, did everything right, downsized and and made sure she had friends around her and she said she's living a great life. And then she says, why do I binge drink every 10 days? I suddenly find myself binge drinking and eating a whole cake. And what, why am I doing this? And I said, it's because you're not grieving. And so you're trying to push all those feelings down. It's okay to um, have the dark side as well as the bright side. Because if we deny the dark side, it will come up and bite us, either mm. being ill or through some weird behavior we don't understand, like binge eating or drinking. And so it's really important to acknowledge the dark sides of our life and, and grieve and grieve them. It's okay to be sad. But then is that a delicate balance between allowing the dark side to pop up and trying to look on the bright side? I mean... How do you get that right? Do you get that right? I don't know. I think it's good if we can be, rather than look on the bright side, I prefer the phrase of being grateful, having gratitude for what we have got, which is like still alive. That's good. Uh, there's still some people we love about. This is good. You know, she's so good at acknowledging and being grateful, this woman, but you can't say, I shouldn't feel, I shouldn't feel sad because I've got so much things going on in my life that are great. You have to go, and I and I have sadness. And the thing is about if you allow your sadness, especially if you can share it with someone that can listen to it and hold it without trying to fix you, it does help lift it. Yeah, we do tend to want to fix, don't we? It's a, a natural kind of thing. And often in a, in a heterosexual relationship, it's a bloke trying to fix and a woman that just wants to emote. And then the trouble is with that is the woman feels she can't emote because it puts pressure on the husband to fix. So we need to tell the men in our life, you don't have to fix, you just have to listen. And uh, one of my favorite Philippa phrases is, don't deal with, feel with. 
So don't deal with yourself. Don't deal with your children. Don't deal with your husband. Just feel with them. It's enough. So is that why Ian and I should go and get pissed together then? <laughs> I think it's great that you can relax with your husband without without alcohol. It it it, it think I think you'll have a nice long life because you won't do your livers in. My husband and I usually sp- spent the whole of August um, at uh, six o'clock when the sun came, when the sun started to sort of come down a little bit, sitting in the garden, having a large glass of rosé. We sort of seem to do it every night. And we started calling it the Jean-Paul Sartre Festival because hell is other people. And uh, this is very nice. But come September and October, we just had to give up booze for two months because otherwise we'd become a couple of old soaks. <laughs> so you've been together, what, 30 years? Oh, I think since 1987. I don't know how long that is. I'm not very good at uh, math. It's longer than over, thir- over 30 years. Over 30 years. That would be similar to me and Ian, actually. I think we got together in 1990. We were not married, but we've been together since 1990 and we've got two two kids. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do the secret of a long and happy relationship question with you because I think that's too big. But No, what... it's quite small. I can do that one. Oh, go on then, <laughs> go on then. If you want a long and happy relationship, what you have to do is honour bids for attention. You might be reading your book and your husband will say to you, look, squirrel out of the window. Put the book down and go, oh, yes, squirrel. That's all he wanted. He just wanted a little bit of attention. When somebody asks for attention by saying, how are you today? Or look, squirrel, whatever, just give it. If seven out of 10 bids for attention are honoured, you are very, very likely to have a happy marriage. And this, of course, has to be mutual. If mm. less than three out of 10 bids for attention are honoured, you're on the rocks. Less than three out of bids for attention honoured plus contempt, bad place. Seven out of 10 bids honoured with respect, secret of a happy marriage. And that was like 32 seconds, I think. Well done, me. That Lee. was very good, wasn't it? What if your partner never bids for attention you know you've got to that stage that you're just sort of operating in sort of um plateau pools to you know concurrent pools that's not the right words you know i'm using you're just operating along indeed thank you yes and Mm -hmm. and the 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 desire for attention from the other one has evaporated but you're just existing together. Sounds doesn't sound much fun, does it? It's not fun, but I mean, there must be lots of long-term relationships like that, don't you think? Yeah, there must be. I think uh, it might be quite good to talk about it and see how, if that was the case, everybody thought, you know, what do we each feel about this? Uh, what do we want for ourselves? I think the scary conversations are good. I like the scary conversations because if we don't have the scary conversations, what happens is the resentment builds up and then we have a row over how to stack the dishwasher, which <laughs> isn't about the dishwasher at all. It's about all the stuff you don't talk about. Have you learned that in over the course of your relationship or did you know that when you went into it? Is it your professional expertise that allows you to take that position or is it good old life? I think it's probably my uh, professional uh, background that's given me that position because the way I was brought up was as a conflict phobic sort of like just any difficult area just tiptoe around the edge of it don't go through it but the trouble is with being completely conflict avoidant and never addressing the difficult subject 
is that everything becomes taboo after a while. And then you do become that couple in the restaurant that have got nothing to say to each other. Because if you talk about anything, it's taboo because it might be an area of difference. So I think it's good to talk about differences. When you were saying growing up, you you didn't. So your parents were not people who addressed issues then? No, never. No, they 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 they'd be they'd be very polite. They'd pussyfoot around issues that annoyed them, and then after about five years, my mother would have a sort of screaming, crying fit because my dad had mowed over a crocus or something. It was sort of like, oh, things have come to a head. I think <laughs> that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But had she said every year when he mowed the crocuses that were just coming up, had she said, it'd be great if you could avoid those crocuses, had she dared assert herself a little bit then, then it wouldn't have come to the the massive head that it did. So did you actively seek another kind of a different relationship from the one that your mum and dad had? I didn't want to marry my dad, so I suppose so, yes. I did, funny enough, want to marry my dad. Did you? Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Are they similar? Yes and no. And the things that matter, yes, they are. Outwardly, probably people wouldn't see it. But yeah, and the the things that count, I think they are. Yeah. I think my father was too dominant for me to ever want to be under that much sort of patriarchal laying down of the law. I don't think I could have taken that. Mm. Yeah, no, my mum was an absolute firebrand. I mean, plates would get thrown you know, which Literally. Makes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Not often. I mean, that that was very extreme. But my God, she gave as good as she got. I mean, it wasn't like in any way a violent relationship at all, but it was tempestuous. Yeah, it was the seventies. Uh, that was one extreme. That, that I must admit, I remember that hit plate and that plate hitting the wall, and I thought, whoops, we're really getting to. It. But no. The thing is about my mum and dad is they always, always communicated, even if they were screaming at each other. And that wasn't the norm. Yeah. And I'd say my parents didn't communicate much. I I mean, they could talk about other people, but they couldn't really talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting then how you learn to have a relationship. I mean, I definitely learned from my parents, for good or for ill. I'm not saying they had a perfect relationship. That's how we learn how to have relationships. I mean, our first relationship with is with our earliest caregiver, normally our, our mother or father. And um, how they relate to us is a sort of blueprint for how we relate to everyone to some extent. But then you didn't want to copy your mum and dad, so you had to learn something else. Did you? I'm, sure, you- I'm sure I do copy them. You know, I'm sure there's aspects of them that are still me because uh, when I'm sort of fussing about something unnecessarily, my husband will call me Nance, which is my mum's name. <laughs> All right, Nance, he'll say, if I go, oh, but the, the napkins don't match or something, you'll go, okay, Nance. And I'll go, oh, yeah, it doesn't really matter if the napkins don't match. That's nice. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. Nice. yeah. When did you go into psychotherapy then? What was it? Is this a desire to understand people or yourself or what? Well, I trained as, I mean, first of all, I had masses of jobs until I was about 27 of various different things. And then when I was 27, um, I went to art school and I sort of trained as an artist first. But I found it hard to take art as seriously as I could take it seriously now, but I couldn't then. I just thought, you know, it's a bit frivolous. What am I doing this for? It's not quite right. And I used to go to the Swiss Cottage Library in St. John's Wood in London 
and read because it was a fantastic psychology library there and just read everything I could. So I sort of gave myself a little bit of an education in psychology and I did psychology A-level at night school and stuff. And then I, I, I just sort of tried to resist it for as long as I could because I thought, I can't possibly do this. It's too hard. I don't want to do this. But then I found myself doing, well, I'll just do the sort of basic counselling course just out of interest, not because I want a career in it or anything. So I was sort of sidling up to it backwards and not sort of quite admitting that this is what I was doing. And then I go, oh, I'll just do the first year because I'm so interested in this, the first year of the psychotherapy bit. And I go, maybe the second year. Oh, if you do the third year, you have to have clients. Oh, my God. Well, I'll have some at a, at a, at a, at a volunteer place. I, I'm, yeah. Anyway, and then after I'd been studying for about seven years, I had to admit that I was actually a psychotherapist and I did have clients and I did have some letters after my name and I was one. But if I thought at the beginning of that process, I am going to train to be a psychotherapist, I would have thought I'm not capable of this and run away. But as I did it increment by increment, and I did it because I was enjoying it in the present, not because in the future, I want to be a psychotherapist. I was enjoying the learning process and that, that's what I wanted to do now. So that's how I sort of managed to be a psychotherapist, really. But, but, but where did the resistance come from? Um, I just thought not for the likes of me. I suppose it was imposter syndrome or sort of a lack of confidence or I, I just thought that it would take too long or, or I don't know. Um, I mean, you're not confident. Oh, I had enough therapy by then. <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, no, I, had, I needed a lot of therapy. I was dyslexic as a child, so um, th- we didn't used to diagnose dyslexia in those days. We just used to call people not very bright. So I was not very bright. And I, I left school at 15, and I was sent to finishing school in Switzerland. Um, God, I never knew that was really a thing. Push. Well, it was when I was a child. So you you weren't being set up then by your parents to sort of have a career, you know, be a... No, they thought, they thought I was useless. The best they hoped for me was to make a good marriage. So you can imagine how delighted they were with my second marriage when, when they said, well, what does your new boyfriend do? And I said, oh, he's the tea boy in a hairdresser. He makes the tea for the ladies that are having their hair done. Their faces sort of drop because that's what Grayson, my husband, did for a living then. And I said, but, you know, in his spare time, he's an artist. I think he's a very good artist. And my father was absolutely horrified, but tough. How did you deal with that? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I dealt with it um, by getting married as soon as I could. So I got married at 20, um, which was far too young, uh, to um, to somebody. I'm not quite sure he, why he married me. Maybe because I, my parents were rich. I don't know. But... You know, he, he never really liked me very much. He seemed to sort of despise me, which, of course, after my father's contempt, having contempt from um, a uh, boyfriend seemed very familiar, so it didn't seem wrong. Someone who gives you intermittent positive reinforcements, like most of the time they're horrible, and then sometimes they're a bit nice. You get such a thrill from that bit nice bit that you think it's love, but it isn't. It's just sort of like begging for for positive attention. And it only works if you've got quite low self-esteem and no confidence, which is what I had as a 20-year-old. But um, I've come on leaps and bounds. Boy, haven't you? <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to read another email and get your thoughts on this because people just 
hit situations in their life and circumstances in their life that, you know, come from out of the blue. And they think, right, well, I don't exactly know how to deal with this. And it would be really good to have somebody else's thoughts. So this is from Wendy. Um, and she said, I turned 16 December last year and I'm encountering a new dilemma that I did not see coming. My dad left my mum when I was just five. Since then, I've only ever seen him a handful of times and had an exchange of birthday and Christmas cards. My three children have never met him, even though he has had an open invitation over the years. I know he's an extreme introvert, which is where I get it from, says Wendy, um, and has chosen to live alone in his advancing age some 200 miles from me. My issue is that he is now in his 90s and increasingly frail, I have been named as his only next of kin. Um, I'm starting to get regular calls from his carer. There is an older sister, but she's cut herself off from the family. I'm starting to get regular calls from his carer and GP regarding his deterioration, uh, his condition, uh, his refusal to accept more help and the fact that he's regularly falling and being taken into hospital. Oof. I feel really torn about this. I wouldn't want any lonely, frail old man to die alone. Equally, I'm scared about getting too involved in his care because he's pretty much a complete stranger to me. What would you do in this situation? I'm guessing I can't be the only one facing this dilemma, and I would love to hear some opinions on how to deal with it. I feel guilty for not wanting to get involved, but I also feel like he chose to live this lonely life. So that's his fault is the word that Wendy uses. There's a psychotherapist called Gabor Mate. And he said, if you face the choice between feeling guilt and resentment, choose guilt every time. And he says, it's wisdom I have passed on to many others since. If a refusal saddles you with guilt, while consent leaves resentment in his wake, opt for guilt. Resentment, says Gabor Maté, is soul suicide. Now, if you think about this lady's um, predicament, she is choosing between guilt, old man dying alone, or resentment, where the hell were you when I was growing up? She also has three ch children, presumably nearer to her than 200 miles, and presumably a relationship and a life. And if she gives that up to go up north, um, well, I presume it's up north, I don't know why I'm presuming up north because my parents were up north when I was down south. If she goes 200 miles away to look after this stranger, is she not going to be eaten up with resentment? Because where was he for the for the moments in her life? You know, where he ran away when she was five. She didn't see him until she got in contact with him later on in life. He hasn't bothered to get to know her children. She doesn't owe him anything. And just because social workers ring her up and make her feel guilty because an old man is dying alone, they don't know the story. I don't think she has to make any sacrifices. I think, yes, she may feel a bit of guilt, but I think that will eat her up less than the resentment will. Now, she might be interested to go up and have a look. She might be curious. And if she wants to, then by all means do it. But if she doesn't want to, why would you go and look after a stranger just because you've got some of his DNA? God, you know, I'm listening to you. My head is saying you're right and my heart is saying you're wrong. Well, maybe that's what I am. Half right, half wrong. But 
I do know this from my clients as well when they come up with the guilt or resentment thing. Choose guilt. Guilt um, doesn't eat you up to the extent that resentment does. Guilt, you feel bad because, oh, I'm a bad person. Resentment, you start to feel hate for the other people. And I think that's worse. And I think that eats you up more. Guilt is strong. And and to hear you say she doesn't owe him anything, if that's the bit that you think, you're right. You've not been around in my life. You've not been, you know, you left when I was five. My children don't know you. And yet she says, I wouldn't want any old man to be living on his own. It's so Well, hard. fine. She could look after some old men that live nearer to her. Yes. She could volunteer at the local old people's home if she wants to look after an old man. But why look after that old man? No, I'm sure mm. she doesn't, yeah. What about in a relationship with, with a parent that's just, who's elderly? I mean, so we're talking about people around about our age. And it's just not a good relationship. Mm. And it's never been a good relationship. But I, I mean, I, I don't know the details, obviously, of your relationship with your parents. Do you ever get to a stage that you just think, you know, I can cut this off? I mean, I, I have a friend who has a relationship with a, with a parent that is not a good relationship, but she feels obliged to try and maintain it in some way, despite the fact that there's not a lot coming in the other direction. Um, and I say, why don't you cut it off? Well... It's interesting, isn't it? Um, my husband's mother was was kind of uh, she's the sort of person that would take your own words and twist them against you, and a huge dramas everywhere. And um, she'd be quite hateful. She'd be quite accusative. Grayson went into therapy, and his therapy said, "And and, and you have a relationship with this person? Why?" And then Grayson decided to actually cut off his relationship with his mother. He thought, right, I'm just not just putting myself up for this abuse any longer. It's upsetting me. I'm not going to do it. With my father and mother, um, I didn't actually have to look after my mother because my father looked after my mother when she was ill. But then when my father became dependent, I think, sure, he did some stuff that was wrong, but he was doing the best that he could. And he did love us, even though he thought the best way of showing your love to your children was with the rod. Don't spare the rod. You spoil the child. You know, he believed in all this stuff. So when it came to looking after him, I wanted to look after him. It wasn't between guilt or resentment because I wanted to look after him because, um, sure, I didn't like being sent away to boarding school, but he thought he was making a financial sacrifice for, to, to do the best thing. He, you know, he never, he never meant any malice. And so I, you know, me and my sister gladly looked after him. But of course, he, he was still quite a sort of spiral man sometimes. And um, so he would say something like, why are you wearing those clothes? They look awful or something like that. And I go, oh, you think these clothes look awful? Thank you for telling me. You know, I'd never argue. You know, I'd just go, ooh. You think I'm a very bad daughter. Well, thanks for letting me know. The worst thing I ever did was take him to hospital when he had gallstones um, because I took him to the hospital where his brother died and his wife died. And he thought I was going to murder him. And so he said, if you take me to that place, I'm writing you out of my will. I went, okay, you're writing me out of the will. We are going to get those gallstones seen to, aren't we? So it was sort of like... It was, I won't say it was easy. He was not an easy man. But when dementia got him, these layers of the, I've got to be the, the tough guy that's always in charge and all these layers fell away. And underneath that, there was 
a really lovely little boy who was just loving and he, he might not know who we were cognitively, but if my sister and I went to see him in his old people's home, he always leant on us. Right. So there was a sort of, it was a good kind of body to body relationship that was kind of beautiful. And I'm so glad I had that. And we were watching the Grand National one day. And he said, um, oh, I'm going to put a bet on a horse. He thought we were actually at Aintree. We were watching it on the television. He said, I'm going to put a bet on a horse. And I said, oh, okay. And when I, when I was going, he said, how did that bet come in? He said, oh, I won 4,000 pounds. I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, I'm going to give it to my daughter. I said, tell me about your daughter. And he said, she looks a lot like you, only she's much, much younger. <laughs> oh, but God, you know, that is such... A beautiful story because, you know, we, we talk about dementia and we see dementia as, as, a, as something that ravages people and it takes away their dignity. We often use this phrase about taking away their dignity, which I have a bit of a problem with personally. Um, and actually, you know, it's life that puts on these expectations and, you know, that we go for status and we go, we act the way we should be. And your dad obviously achieved and did what he thought he should. But as you say, Dementia probably stripped away all of that artificial stuff. Yeah, it did. And he he was just, I mean, if he sort of had an accident and spilled his food, he went, oh, he's oh, going to get into trouble. And I go, no, it's okay. It's okay. You know, he, was, he went into a little boy. It was, he was, I could really love him easily as this little boy because it was easier to love, love than this, I'm the man that's in charge and I will tell you what to do sort of person. So I'm glad I looked after my dad. I mean, I didn't have him to live with me, but we, we put him in a um, really, really good private home where he was looked after well. Was Grayson content with his decision to, to cut off his relationship with his mum? Yeah, I think so. I think it was the best thing for him because um, she, she'd ring up all the time and say that he'd done things like, you've driven me to suicide. And she'd do this to all four of her children. He wasn't singled out for this treatment. I think he was pleased. And she got, uh, she had a stroke in the end and died. Um, and he, di he didn't even go to the funeral it, and he, d he didn't cry. He hasn't felt anything about it. Uh, he didn't cut up, he, his, his, his parents were divorced. He didn't cut off his father at all, just, just the mother. Mm. So what makes you two tick then? Everyone's curious about your relationship with Grayson Perry, the celebrated artist, Turner Prize winner, who, and I'm just going to say dresses very distinctively. What makes you two tick? I don't like a grey suit on a man. I can't really think of that. <laughs> well, you don't get it, do you? <laughs> no, I'm very lucky in that respect. Um, what makes us tick? I mean, obviously, we've just got a very normal, ordinary marriage. <laughs> I mean, I think that's how it feels. It's the only one I've had for so long. I can't remember what the other one's, one was like. It's certainly more normal and nice than the other one I had. Obviously, if it's warm outside and it's summertime and we've got a good view in front of us, two deck chairs and a glass of wine, that helps. Honouring biz for attention, respecting each other, I think. I think that's really important. But the way your relationship is on the inside is obviously going to be very different from the way that people look from the outside because from what, the outside... See, see two people on a red carpet smiling and going and going into dinner. You can't really tell anything from that. I suppose we were on the telly, weren't we? Come on, you stand out from, from what is people are conventionally used to. I'm not ever to. going to wear a, a beige car coat. <laughs> if, if this podcast is called How to Be 60, How to Be 60 is... 
chuck away anything beige in the wardrobe. That's what I say. And oh, I'm just checking what you two have got on. Oh, no, you're all right. Oh, I've got grey on, but that's quite metropolitan. Hey, well, matches our hair, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, yeah, you have got a very distinctive sense of style. Have you always had that, or is that something that you've developed? I love clothes. I mean, speaking as a psychotherapist, there's two ways to sort of live your life. There's internally referencing where you do things because what they feel like internally to you. So I wear this jacket because it's nice and soft on my neck, you see, so it feels nice. So um, that's internally referencing. And externally referencing is what you do things because how what you imagine they look like to other people. So uh, we externally reference when we go, hey, I look so cool in this jacket. Everybody thinks I'm going to be so cool. And that's externally referencing. And um, I try and get a balance of both. I don't want to be so internally referenced that I go out in public in my pyjamas and so externally referenced that I, I go out wearing high heels that I can't walk in. So it, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a balance. But on the whole, I think if we care too much about what other people think we look like and we don't dress for ourselves – I think I think we're we're missing out on a bit of pleasure. But a lot of people do as they get older. There's no doubt, you know, they they do sort of become much more conservative in what they wear. Quite much comfortable, less, I like to think of it as comfortable. Yeah. So what is what are they externally referencing then? Well, I think they they've given it up, and they're just internally referencing. And I've certainly done that from the knees down. I can only be seen that these days in trainers or mountain bike or, or sort of uh, hiking boots because they support my weak ankles. <laughs> you slag me off for that. I do, I do. But then that's part of our charm. It, it really is. <laughs> charm. Yeah, you stick to your guns with those nice hiking boots. They're very good for your ankles. They keep oh, you your body, I do. So we're going to play our little game of uh, Big Six or Bingo. So just two random questions. But just before we get into that, you're 65, 66? 66! Does age register with you at all, getting older? Are you kidding? I've had a hip replaced this year. Um, I've got arthritis in the other hip, but oh, I hope my surgeon doesn't listen to this. I don't want a bloody another operation. I've got um, I've got tendonitis in one ankle. I have to go cold water swimming just oh. to get my muscles to work because it's sort of like plunging myself in ice seems to do something that's quite beneficial. I have to nap in the afternoons. I can't get up out of a chair without making a sort of uh, I know I started to do that like, uh, so yeah um on on the plus side I always had acne as a, as a child and in my 20s I had acne for a very long time so I've got really greasy skin so now I've hardly got a wrinkle which is marvelous because um of how much grease my I still get spots which make keeps me looking young <laughs> yeah but do you have a hairy face Oh God, it's so much work. Like, <laughs> right. There's about seven really persistent uh, re recurring whiskers that need quite a lot of my attention. And I was quite interested that you've let you've let one of yours grow one and a half inches long. I've got one of those, and I'm afraid I pluck it out. I have quite a lot of pleasure from plucking it out. It has to be I said. I like it. I quite like it. Yeah, yeah. But so mentally, though, how does it feel about aging? That's what your body's doing. What's your head doing? 
my head's doing, I I realised that I am mortal, which you'd think, yeah, well done, Phil. It's taken you 66 years <laughs> to realise that. But um, it does concentrate the mind. And I think my publicist suffers a great deal because she says, oh, you've got to go on Radio 5 Live and do this. I go, don't want to. No, so. not going to. Sorry, nice. not going to happen. Um, because, uh, yeah, I only do what I want because life is short. Number, please, between 1 and 60. 52. 52. 52. 52. 52. I think we should get your ever jacket to, to do quiet. Ever told someone you loved them when you didn't? I tell people I love them all the time. And in that moment, I really do love them. I'm not saying it's a lasting love line. <laughs> but, so you believe um, it at the time. Yeah, I, I, I love a lot of people. Um, I love loving. I think it's a great thing to do. And uh, I will tell people I love them, yeah. Right. Uh, next number, please. One more. Four. Right, right, right. Are you lusty? I think it's lustful, isn't it? Oh, it's a bit of a nuisance, isn't it? But yeah, I am. Mm, oh, yeah. I'm liking that. Uh, what, do you still feel the urge? I'm on HRT still. All right. Fueling it. It's testosterone? No, I'm not on any of that, despite the chin hairs you think. No, I, I wasn't meaning the chin. I just meant the lustiness. But that's oh, great, isn't no, it? Have, no, no, I'm on. Uh, I'm on the P and the E. What's yeah. that? Yeah, the estrogen. I think estrogen yeah. and progesterone. Progesterone. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I'm, and I think it it does keep the lust off. It's a bit of a nuisance, actually. Why? I like it. Why is it a nuisance? Oh, you know, it's just something else to fit into the day. <laughs> well, we're not going to keep you much longer. <laughs> yeah. It's all right, my husband's on tour. <laughs> That'll be why it adds to it, doesn't it? Monogamy's a bore. Listen, <laughs> Philippa, it has been so lovely speaking to you. It really has. It's been great. It's been so much fun. Thank Remember, you so, so much. When it comes to guilt and resentment, choose guilt. That's my parting shot. Well, we can't finish without reading out Tracy's poem. Oh, I know. Can't we? Tracy that, that emailed in. Um, and it's really good to hear that she's kind of getting herself back on track. So here we go, Tracy. Um, apologies if my um, recitation skills aren't very good. Um, I'm 60 now. The day is here. I'm determined to be full of cheer. Try not to care. My gels are baggy, not to mind. My boobs are saggy. I do not care if my hair is grey or if I've forgotten what I've got to say. It doesn't matter. I can't see. And I'm up and down all night to pee. Who gives a damn my hearing shot? And I seem to fart a lot. <laughs> I don't care that I've not had much luck. I'm learning to say I don't give a fuck. The only alternative, it has to be said, to reaching 60 is that you could be dead. Thanks for the podcast. That is brilliant. Wasn't it? Great. What a great poem. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. We might put that on a tea towel. That so, might be better. That's a good Yeah, good. Thanks for that, Tracy. All the best of luck. Uh, we're back next week with Alistair Campbell. <laughs> You're going to have to channel your inner Rory Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.